All right, folks, we get to the preaching of God's word, and we are in Revelation chapter number 19. And again, I hope you have your Bible there in front of you as you're sitting in front of your computer, possibly in your living room or in your office or in the kitchen or on your device, wherever you might be. But I hope you have your Bible there in front of you because you may want to make a couple of notes. We've got a very exciting chapter here in front of us. Now, we've just come through chapter 17 and 18, the total destruction and annihilation of Babylon the Great. You have the religious aspect of Babylon the Great, and it's a wicked, wicked uh, religious aspect. It's caused for the martyrdom of untold millions of, of uh, believers, saved, blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ. They have been put to death. And um, Babylon's hands are dripping with the blood of the martyrs. And then there was the commercial sort of slash political uh, aspect of it. Probably more the commercial. And it was totally annihilated within an hour. And we saw this. Now, if somehow you've missed our study on chapter 17 and 18, I really encourage you to look up those messages, sit down, watch them, have your Bible open, take some notes. You know, it seems to me we're living in the last days. <clears throat> seems to me we're looking at world events all coming together and never has the world ever been in the position that it's in these days. Well, chapter 19 forms a bridge between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom in chapter 20. And it's an exciting bridge. Uh, this chapter shows us four major events. Number one, the rejoicing of heaven over the destruction of Babylon. Number two, the marriage supper of the lamb. Number three, the return of Jesus Christ and his destruction of the armies of the world. And that takes place at Armageddon. And number four, the destruction of the Antichrist, false prophet, and the imprisonment of Satan. There is far too much for us to properly look at tonight in one sermon. So we're going to try to cut it in half. So this is part one. This is uh, the end of the tribulation, part one. Let's call it that. So we're going to look at the first two major events of chapter 19. Would you close your eyes and bow your head for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would use the word of God tonight in the heart of every blood-bought, born-again Christian. We pray, Father, that you would help us to make the best use of our time all the time we have left before Jesus comes in the clouds and calls us home. And help us to be everything you want us to be. Bless now, we pray, the study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Two points to uh, tonight's message. Point number one. The rejoicing of heaven over Babylon's destruction. And that's in chapter 19, the first five verses. So it's sort of conveniently divided into five and five, if you will. One to five, six to ten. Part one here deals with 
the first two major events. Number one, the rejoicing of heaven over Babylon's destruction. Now, if you will remember, actually look at it, you may as well look at it. In chapter 18, verse 20, there is a call for heaven to rejoice. It says, rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And there's a call there, a call for heaven to rejoice. And so chapter 19, verse 1, after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven, in heaven, saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And so here we have the answer to the call in chapter 18, verse 20. Joy and rejoicing in heaven and worship of God because of the destruction of this wicked thing, Babylon the Great. Now, we don't have a proper concept of the enormity of this event. We're not taking it in, folks. We're not realizing the phenomenal uh, hallelujahs and rejoicing over the destruction of the great whore, Babylon the Great. We don't realize what a, what a great rejoicing it is. A small illustration, only a small illustration of this joy and rejoicing, I think, was seen in the world at the end of World War I and the end of World War II. After those worldwide wars were finally over, finished, they were won. There was rejoicing in the streets. In not all, but in many, maybe most of the cities of the world. After World War I was finally won. And World War II was finally won. There was tremendous joy. And people were rejoicing and singing and dancing in the streets because the war was over. Well, there is tremendous joy in heaven now because of this, what God has done in destroying, annihilating, completely uh, uh, getting rid of <laughs> this Babylon the Great. Now, something interesting here. The word Alleluia, um, there's only four times the word Alleluia is, is ever used in the New Testament. And they're all right here. All of them, all four of them here in verses one, three, four, and six. But they're not used. There is no hallelujahs until the culmination of devilish evil on earth in the form of Babylon the Great is finally destroyed. And then the hallelujahs ring. Now, hallelujah and hallelujah, the same word. One is Hebrew, one is Greek, same word. The saints in heaven all know, they understand the enormity of this event. And they all know that Babylon the Great is Satan's finest masterpiece of evil. And that's why they rejoice. They are so pumped. They are so excited. And they're worshiping God. Now look at verse 2. And here are the two main reasons for heaven's rejoicing. For true and righteous are his judgments. 
for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. We've talked about that. And we believe that to be a more of a spiritual fornication. Although I really do believe there's going to be a lot of physical fornication and physical adultery, all kinds of sodomy, all kinds of sexual sin, maybe even types that we've never heard of. They'll have it. But I think the emphasis is on a spiritual fornication, a complete, total turning away from God and turning into the world, the flesh and the devil. And I think that this is the sort of thing spoken of here. And so the two reasons, number one, is God has judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. And number two, he hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. Now, the religious aspect of Babylon is a false religion. If ever there was false religion, it's right here. She's called the great whore. It's said that she's absolutely drunk with the blood of the saints. You can see that in chapter 17, verse 6. She has murdered countless millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of God's children, and now she must pay. Now for this, I want you to turn back to chapter 14. And look, please, at verse 9. Chapter 14 and verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. God is very serious. He is very angry at the wickedness and the sins of this great whore, this Babylon the Great. And he is absolutely livid with them and he has destroyed them. And this, of course, is, is the reason here for heaven's rejoicing. And I want you to notice something about their destruction in verse 3, chapter 19. And again, they say, Alleluia. There's another Alleluia right there. And her smoke, that's Babylon the Great, and her smoke rose up, look at these next words, forever and ever. Forever and ever. She will never be rebuilt. This false, wicked, false religion, especially this false religious side, will never, ever get back on its feet. Never. This is very important. There will never, ever again be a false religion. Never. Right now we read in the news and religious people are taking it upon themselves to commit murder and they're murdering God's people. It's happening in the world. Just this morning, I read of a few more that were martyred, killed. We hear in the news of, of someone who uh, goes into a, a church with uh, armed um, weapons and they rat-tat-tat and they shoot and they kill 
God's people. And some of them do it in the name of religion, false religion. Never again, ever, 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 will this ever, ever, ever happen. Because the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Now in verse 4, we see our friends, the elders and the beasts. <laughs> and the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen! Alleluia! There's another Alleluia right there, isn't it? So we've, we've seen three out of the four Alleluias. Only four times is it ever mentioned in the, the Bible and it's all right here in chapter 19. And it happens after the destruction of the most wicked, evil, fiendish, devilish, sinful, any other adjective you can think of. Contraption that Satan has built on earth. Babylon the Great. It is everything horrible that we can think of plus more. It's that bad. And here we see the 24 elders falling down and worshiping Almighty God and the beasts falling down and worshiping God who sits on the throne and saying, Amen! Hallelujah! The elders and the beasts are agreeing with what God has just done. They see the hand of Almighty God upon the destruction of that horrible, horrible, horrible place, Babylon the Great. They know its wickedness. Perhaps they've even shed tears as they've seen that great whore, Babylon the Great, murder God's children. They're happy. They're excited. They said, Amen. Amen, Lord. Amen. They said, Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Hallelujah is what they said. They agree with what God has just done on earth. Now, I like to say that sometimes we don't understand what God does on earth. Sometimes God does something on earth and we don't understand it. Now, at that point, the devil seems to come and whisper into our ears that God doesn't understand. God doesn't really care or he would not have allowed this to happen. Face it, there are some times where you and I, we go through sorrows. We have to sort of tread through some pretty deep waters in life. There are times when we're called upon to suffer loss, pain. We shed tears. Our heart is breaking. We don't understand why God has allowed something. And the tempter, the devil, just like a monkey on our back, will try and whisper into our ear, if God really loved you, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. That's where we need to raise our shield of faith. You see, faith is the evidence of things not seen. And by faith, we need to agree with God. 
There are times we need to get on our knees and pray, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. You see? And so here in heaven in verse 4, we see these elders and beasts in total agreement with what God has done on earth. Now, there are other people back on earth during this time that are pulling their hair out and they're weeping and they're gnashing their teeth and they're beating themselves on the chest and they're saying, oh, it's horrible, it's terrible. Babylon in one hour is gone. Oh, what are we ever going to do? And there are people bewailing this on earth, but up in heaven. Heaven's residents all seem to understand this is something that needed to be done. Praise the Lord. And so let's exercise faith next time God allows something in our lives that we're, we're not sure what he's doing. Let's give God the benefit of the doubt. Now we move to verse 5 and we find a voice now coming from the throne of God. It says, Praise our God, all ye servant, ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And so here we've got this voice telling us to praise God, which, by the way, is something that you and I should be doing every day anyhow. Did you do it today? Did you praise the Lord for something, anything? Have you yet to give God thanks for this day and for what he's done for you? Have you yet to give him praise for the blessings and the good things he's done? And the fact that he's still on the throne and he is coming in the clouds for us one day and he does answer prayer. Have you given him praise today? That's very important. Psalm 33 verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely. That means it's beautiful. It's beautiful in the eyes of God. It's beautiful in the eyes of those that live in heaven. Praise is comely for the upright. Psalm 147 verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. For it is, a, it is good to sing praises unto our God. For it is pleasant and praise is comely. All right. Point number one. The rejoicing of heaven over Babylon's destruction. Point number two. The marriage supper of the lamb. And here we have verses six to ten. Now look at verse six. We have here another voice. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude. Now here John is listening to a, another voice now. And this voice is different because it sounds as if it's a great multitude of people. It sounds as if it's many waters and it sounds as if it's many thunderings. So this is a powerful voice. Some wonder if this could be the voice of God himself. We don't know. But in verse 6 here, we have the fourth hallelujah. Here's the fourth one. And the reason hallelujah is said, it's listed here, is because the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's good news, folks. Hallelujah. We must always remember that this is true no matter what happens in the world today. We may all wake up tomorrow morning and, and find total chaos in our country. But we must never forget our God 
is still on the throne. Would someone please text in amen to that? God is still on the throne. And the next verse indicates why this hallelujah has been uttered. In verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Now notice that this marriage of the lamb, before this marriage of the lamb could happen, the hellish Babylonian system of Satan must first be destroyed. And it is. And now we can say hallelujah because of the marriage of the lamb. Now, what is the marriage of the lamb? The marriage of the lamb, of course, we know that the lamb is Jesus. We learned that earlier in earlier chapters. The lamb is Jesus. And it's the occasion of uniting the lamb, Jesus Christ, with his wife. The next question is, who is his wife? Who is the wife? Now, all you Bible scholars, get your pens ready. Many excellent Bible teachers down through the years believe that the wife is the church. And they believe that because the New Testament, in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. We say bride, wife, it's sort of synonymous. The bride is the wife. Even after a marriage ceremony, we still refer to, you know, the, the, the wife as the bride. We, we still do that. In Ephesians 5, verses 30 to 32, you'll find that the church is referred to as Christ's bride. Now, on the other hand, there are many excellent Bible teachers that believe that the wife is redeemed Israel. And that's because in the Old Testament, Israel was known as the wife of Jehovah. Isaiah 54, verse 6 is a reference on that. Now, one thing I want you to keep in mind here, folks, is that the covenant which God gave to Abraham, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, it applies to all saved people, all born-again regenerate people, whether they were saved out of Israel or whether they're the saved of the church. It applies right up to the very last person who is to be saved. So that at some point, every saved person becomes part of God's family, whether they're saved before or during um, or um, even after the tribulation, there'll be people saved in the millennial kingdom. Now here, listen, I think that the most important key, how are we going to know who the bride or who the wife is? I have a suggestion, and I think that this is the key, the most important key to understanding who the wife is. And the key is this, the location of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where is it being held? Well, I believe that verses 1 to 7 are very clear. They indicate that all the activity is still happening up in heaven. There's nothing happening on earth as far as, as verses 1 to, to 7 goes. And so it indicates that the marriage of the Lamb is happening in heaven. Well, where is Jesus? 
Is he on earth? No, he's still up in heaven at this point. He hasn't come to earth yet. Where's the nation Israel? Is it in heaven? No, it's down on earth at this point. And therefore, it seems the most logical that the marriage of the Lamb is between Christ and his church. Jesus, of course, has already come back to earth in the air and in the rapture, taken his church, his bride, to heaven. But the marriage ceremony hasn't taken place yet. Now, this is similar to how Abraham sent his servant off to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And the servant ends up over in Laban's household, and there's Rebecca. And he thinks, boy, she's the perfect, perfect wife for my master's son. And so she, she tells her, he, I'm sorry, he tells Rebecca all about her, uh, his uh, master and master's son. And he pulls out all the, the evidence, the riches, and shows them to Rebecca. And then asks Rebecca, will you come? And she answers, I will come. And so the servant brings Rebecca with him back home where she meets Isaac, and then she becomes his wife. So we have a similar, a parallel here between what Christ has done and will do for his church, the bride, and what Abraham did for his son. So there's a similarity there. Now, after this event here in heaven, Jesus returns to earth now with his bride, with his wife. Bible scholars will often point to Matthew 25, the first 13 verses. It talks about the virgins waiting for the bridegroom. And they'll point to this and they'll show how the virgins are like Israel. Waiting for the groom, for Christ to return from heaven with his wife, the church. Now, please note, uh, I should throw this in. There are some Baptists who believe that the bride will only be Baptists. And they refer to themselves as Baptist briders. Now, this is not a biblical truth because all of the redeemed, all saved people of this present age are organically connected to Jesus Christ. And therefore, they are part of the bride. Now, we could spend a whole lot more. There's much more involved. But in a nutshell, there you go. Now, look at verse 8, please. Chapter 19, verse 8. And to her... This is the bride, the wife. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And so here the wife, the bride, is arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. And it's the righteousness of the saints. Now please understand that this linen was given. It was allowed that she should be adorned this way. The church did not save itself. This linen, this righteousness of saints, has nothing to do with salvation. The church 
did not save itself. Jesus saved the church. He died for the church in Ephesians chapter 5. But the church got herself ready for Christ by her righteousness. Now this word is actually a plural. It's something like sheep. And uh, sheep can be singular. Sheep can be plural. Fish can be singular. Fish can be plural. Righteousness can be singular. Righteousness can be plural. In this case, it's a plural. And the idea is her acts, her deeds of righteousness. The church didn't save itself by its righteousness. No, it prepared itself for the marriage supper of the lamb, for this great reunion, this, this great union, perhaps I should say, between the church and her savior and her Lord and Christ. The way the church prepares itself is by good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved unto good works. There are false religions such as the Jehovah's Witnesses who go knocking on doors and they believe that by their good works, they will be afforded a place in the new world order. That's their belief. We don't believe anything such. We believe we're saved by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through his shed blood on the cross that saves us. It's a free gift, not by works of righteousness, but by his precious blood are we saved. But now that we're saved, this is where the good works come in. We're saved to do good works. And this is how the church prepares herself by her righteous good deeds. Now, there are some Christians who seem to think that after they're saved, they can just live any which way they want. Oh, beloved, this is a huge mistake. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. They've been set forth in the scriptures as an illustration for us, not, not to live any which way you, you think. You can't go lying to God. You can't do it. You, you cannot sow bad seed and get a, a, a good harvest. You're going to reap what you sow. And I do believe that there have been many instances down through the, 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 the years of Christians not living properly for Christ. And finally, after numerous attempts to turn them around, and we spoke a little bit about this on Sunday, this past Sunday, you may want to check out Sunday morning's message, but there may come a time God says that's it. And you die prematurely and he takes you home to prevent you from further sin. Christians who do not live for Jesus Christ will not be granted the fine linen. Huh. Listen, it's similar to being rewarded for our good works up, up in heaven. And so Christian, what kind of robe are you going to end up wearing? What are you doing on earth? Are you sending, you know, your, your good deeds ahead 
Are you laying up treasures in heaven? When that wonderful day comes, the marriage supper of the Lamb, what are you going to have to wear? Because it appears the church got herself ready by her righteous deeds. Christian, get busy. We don't have much time left. Verse 9. We have to move on. And he saith unto me. Now this, I believe, is the angel. If you look at chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me. I think this is the same guy. So verse 9. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, well, well. Who are these? By the way, listen. I need to tell you something. This particular view of the wife being the church, marriage supper of the Lamb, it's between Jesus Christ and the church, this view does not answer all the questions there are. No view does. Uh, the two main views are that the, the wife is the church or the wife is Israel. Those are the two main views. Neither one answers every single question. Now we've got here, it seems, a group of people that are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Here an angel is telling John to write an important message for all those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So if the wife is the bride of Christ, the church, then who are these that are invited? Because you see in verse 9, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. So who are they? Well, one possible answer. And again, it seems to make sense is that these are the Old Testament saints that are in heaven, as well as the tribulation saints who are in heaven. You see, they're not part of the church. They were not saved during the church age. And so they're not actually part of the church, but they share in the, the joy and the glory of the Lamb and, and His Supper. And it's maybe something similar to how John the Baptist in uh, John chapter three, John the Baptist said that he is the friend of the bridegroom and rejoicing for the, for the bridegroom. And so there may be a, a similarity there. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who baptized us into the body of Christ. And that did not happen prior to Pentecost the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It did not happen. And so when Jesus comes to take his church, you see, there's no more body of Christ. So, something to think about, right? Verse 10, we've got to hurry up. We're closing up here. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Uh oh this has got to be a mistake. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we see John here making a mistake. 
And perhaps John was so caught up in the glory of the events that were being unfolded before him that he just made a mistake and he fell down before the angel. He was so full of gratitude to God, he just wasn't thinking and fell down and worshiped the angel. That's a possibility. You know, I'm reminded of how John and Peter and James were taken by Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And while they were there, Jesus, his clothes uh, became glistening white. He was transformed. That's why they call it Mount of Transfiguration. And before them, there was Moses and Elijah. And there's Peter, sleepy. And he, he's trying to take it all in. And maybe he's, he's dazzled and dazed by the glory of it all. And he makes a mistake. And he sort of puts Jesus and Moses and Elijah on an equal plane. Saying, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that was a dumb, dumb mistake of, of Peter's. And that's when the Heavenly Father had to overshadow things and say, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. So perhaps John made a similar mistake. We have to close now. My Christian friend, I ask you, are you engaged in good works? Plenty of them. Are you bringing forth good works for the Lord Jesus Christ while you are still on here on earth so that one day, one day soon, when we get to heaven, you will be granted to wear clean linen at the marriage supper of the Lamb. One important good work that we can do is to give unto the Lord's work. Folks, there's no denying it. That is a good work. It brings honor and glory to God. Last few years, I guess, I've told my wife, honey, we can afford to be generous toward people because God sees that and then God is generous back to us. This past Sunday, I got a bit of a surprise. My wife surprised me. And instead of donating $40 to the youth fund, like I asked her to, she donated $100 to the youth fund. Oh, were you angry? Were you upset? No, not in the least. In fact, when she told me that, I got a grin on my face. I was excited. I said, why were you excited? Because God always blesses that stuff back to us. Whenever we give unto a good work, God always blesses it back. You say, so what happened? So yesterday, my wife and I were in the Home Depot and we had to make a, a, a purchase for something for our home, a little bit of a major purchase, something for our home. And listen, as God is my witness, here's what happened. We're at the, the checkout there, right? And we had one of the, the Home Depot men assist us. And out of the blue, for no reason at all, he discounted the price, $80. And we looked at that and we looked at each other and we knew what it meant. God was blessing it back to us. Now listen to this. You know that $40 I told her to give to the youth fund? It only cost me 20 bucks. <laughs> How many times can you buy $40 worth of something and only have to pay $20 for it? That's what God does. I like God's mathematics. 
Oh, that gave us cause to rejoice. You see, God is good. I tell you what, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Titus chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou co affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And I'll tell you one more good work, the fire brigade. You need to get involved with the fire brigade and help us to get the gospel into people's homes. We're not ready to knock on doors yet. Won't be acceptable yet but we can put gospel literature into mailboxes. That's a good work. You should be involved with it. Bow your head. Let's pray. Heavenly father. We thank you that you're a wonderful prayer answering God. Thank you for all of your people. Father in Jesus name, bless them and encourage them to good works, good works. Heavenly father, help us to be a church of good works, prayer, good works. Father, I pray you'd bless the remaining moments of our service together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, folks, would you go to the donation page? And maybe you might want to make a donation to our building fund. That would be a good work. But we leave it up to you. Do as you see fit. We have a closing hymn now. We are going to sing. And I think it's very appropriate, just a closer walk. God bless you.